Tonight on NJ Spotlight News, Menendez forced out. Could efforts underway in Washington and Trenton push the embattled senior senator out? It's for the sake of the people's business that we have the undivided attention of the office holder on the, on the tasks and duty ahead. Also, former Congressman Tom Malinowski weighs in on Menendez and raises red flags about funding for Egypt. It does cast a cloud of suspicion on the decisions that the Senate was making at the time. Plus, protecting farm workers. Farm workers um, nationally are 35 times more likely to die of heat than other workers. Environmentalists seek federal legislation to guard against rising temperatures in the Garden State fields. And medical play, St. Joseph's Hospital in Patterson incorporating a little fun to help children battling illness. The child needs to be healed in various aspects, right? So not just the body, but the mind and the spirit. NJ Spotlight News begins right now. Funding for NJ Spotlight News is provided by NJM Insurance Group, serving the insurance needs of residents and businesses for more than 100 years. Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Jersey, an independent licensee of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association, and by the PSEG Foundation. From NJPBS, this is NJ Spotlight News with Brianna Venosi. Good evening and thanks for joining us this Friday night. I'm Joanna Gagas, in for Brianna Venosi. While the calls continue to grow for U.S. Senator Bob Menendez to resign, at this point more than half of the Senate Democratic Caucus calling for him to step aside even after he addressed his colleagues in a private meeting yesterday. Democratic Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman has said he'd consider an expulsion resolution against him, forcing Menendez out if he won't resign. Such a move hasn't been made in more than 160 years. It would require two-thirds of the Senate to be approved, and that doesn't look likely as there are several Democratic senators, including Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, insisting the legal process should play out and Menendez should have the chance to defend himself in court. But here in New Jersey, one Republican legislator is proposing a ballot question that would require Menendez or any politician to resign under such circumstances. Senior correspondent Brenda Flanagan takes a look at who's weighing in on which side and what it all means for the balance of power in Washington. Indicted Senator Bob Menendez defended his adamant refusal to resign during a closed-door caucus in Washington yesterday. He wants Senate Democrats' support after more than half of them urged him to step down, including Jersey colleague Cory Booker. Menendez knows the value of his vote, and his tone was anything but apologetic. We'll continue to cast votes on behalf of the people of New Jersey as I have for 18 years. And I'm sure when they need those votes, they'll be looking forward for me to cast those votes. Senate Democrats hold a razor-thin 51 to 49 margin, and the death of Democrat Dianne Feinstein after a long illness only underscores the problematic political math. So obviously today's news of the death of Dianne Feinstein changes the calculation, literally, um, for Democrats. So now they have to be even more concerned about losing the numbers they need to push through anything. Rutgers Kelly Dittmar thinks this might buy Menendez at least some short-term relief, particularly from Senate colleagues like Pennsylvania's John Fetterman. He's not only called for Menendez to step down, but said he'd vote to expel his fellow Democrat from the Senate. 
Um, so I actually wonder, right, um, what this will mean for some of the messaging around Senator Menendez and some of the pressure on him to resign. Um, it wouldn't be surprising if some of that slows down until we have a replacement for Senator Feinstein. Unless Democrats see um, some imminent liability, right, some imminent political damage, um, if Schumer were to go to him and say, you're costing us support here, or if Murphy were to say, you know, you, the legislature's at risk. Um, there's nothing that's going to back him out of being dug in to finish out his term. Riders Micah Rasmussen says the Senate's expelled only one member since the Civil War, that Menendez hangs on while facing a second federal corruption trial, the first ended in a hung jury, outrages a lot of people. To have a, a U.S. senator under indictment like this again, and very little being done about it, other than calling for resignation, uh, simply not enough. Assembly Minority Leader John DeMeos dug out a 2008 resolution that had let New Jersey voters amend the state constitution so indicted elected officials would be suspended from office without compensation until the charges are dismissed, the person is acquitted of the charges, or the person's convicted. The Republican says Menendez can't properly serve Jersey constituents while fighting these charges. And he was indicted before he went to trial, before he didn't resign. Understood. But he still couldn't do the job as he would normally do without an indictment hanging over his head. DeMeo says it would be up to the governor to select an interim replacement for a U.S. senator, Governor Murphy, who called for Menendez to step down just hours after the indictment was unsealed, won't comment. We are a country where you're innocent until proven guilty. And even in my statement uh, asking Senator Menendez to resign, we made that point. Um, but I won't speculate on any potential legislation. Moreover, Rasmussen believes it would take a federal constitutional amendment to, in effect, mothball a sitting U.S. senator. For now, folks on both sides of the aisle are resigned, except, of course, for Senator Menendez. I'm Brenda Flanagan, NJ Spotlight News. The bribery and corruption charges against U.S. Senator Bob Menendez include allegations that he used his influence on Capitol Hill to benefit the Egyptian government. Those charges have brought into focus the billions in funding that the U.S. provides to Egypt each year. Brianna Venozzi sat down with former Congressman Tom Malinowski, who was co-chair of the Egypt Human Rights Caucus in the House. He gave his perspective on the impact of these allegations and how our government should handle its support of Egypt moving forward. Well, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time on this. You know, the details regarding Egypt may not have been the sexiest part of the indictment, given the gold bars and cash, uh, but you were the House co-chair of Egypt Human Rights, uh, the Egypt Human Rights Caucus at the time, allegedly, that these meetings um, and arrangements were happening. What struck you when you read the indictment? You know, Egypt is the number two recipient of foreign aid or was the number two recipient of foreign aid uh, in the world. Uh, $1.3 billion in military aid from the United States every year. And it's a brutal, corrupt dictatorship. Um, I always felt that we don't get a great deal from this relationship that we have with the generals who run Egypt. And, and when I was in the House with a lot of other of my colleagues, bipartisan, we, we tried to put restrictions on that money and otherwise hold the Egyptian government accountable. So knowing now that, number one, the Egyptians may have been running 
a an influence operation targeting the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and that apparently the chairman of the committee was kind of running this side deal with them at the time. That's really, really troubling. I mean, Senator Menendez would have been in on those negotiations, would he not, regarding aid or withholding aid? Senator Menendez, as the chairman of the Foreign uh, Relations Committee, would have had um, the ability single-handedly to block aid to Egypt and, and to other countries. And, of course, tremendous influence on, on other decisions, on legislation that would have been moving or not moving. So, um, look, I, I don't know exactly what role he played at all times behind the scenes. I can't tell you that the decisions that he made were influenced by these extracurricular activities that were described in the indictment. But it does cast a cloud of suspicion on the decisions that the Senate was making at the time. Does it also, though, do away with this notion that Egypt hasn't really um, seen uh, U.S. assistance as a point of leverage? Because it seems as though, as alleged in the indictment, that in fact uh, this military aid and this other uh, U.S. assistance was quite valuable to them. It's extremely valuable to them. Again, $1.3 billion, that's a lot of money, uh, particularly in a smaller country like Egypt. And they've been getting it for decades. They, they see it as an entitlement, uh, which I think is a problem. They don't do very much for us in exchange for this money. And there have been many efforts led by human rights advocates in the United States to try to cut or restrict that aid. So having a powerful member of the Senate uh, having their backs, if that's indeed what happened here, would be a, a very good get for them. We've all come together to say Senator Menendez should resign. I, I think it speaks well of the Democratic Party. I think it shows that we have at least one normal, healthy political party in America, one that will hold its own members accountable when um, they violate the, the standards, the principles that, uh, that our party holds dear. All right. Former Congressman Tom Malinowski, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Worker strikes have become a common occurrence lately, and it appears another one could be possible if the teaching staff at the New Jersey Institute of Technology in Newark doesn't finalize a contract soon. Workers are going on 15 months without a contract, and as Ted Goldberg explains, they're frustrated by the slow speed of negotiations. Five months ago, some of NJIT's employees were frustrated to work without a contract. We've been trying to negotiate with them in good faith, and we put our proposals out last October, and they didn't respond to us until a couple of weeks ago. And to be honest with you, you know what they offered us for a raise this current year? Zero. Now, it's been 15 months since the contract ended between NJIT and the union representing its postdoc students, PhD workers, and adjunct instructors. We've had some tentative agreements on smaller items, but big items like uh, wages, we're still negotiating. Um, we're still waiting for counterproposals. Uh, from management. Those were sent last October. They've resorted to stalling and uh, diversionary tactics. I mean, for the first couple of months, they wouldn't even uh, meet with the adjunct professors and the graduate student workers in the same room, even though we're represented by the same union. Nicholas Dubicki is a teaching assistant and PhD student at NJIT. He's researched magnetic materials here for five years. I'll be graduating next uh, April if everything goes well. He's only half joking. 
Dubicki went to an on-campus protest last week and was arrested. Police were waiting there for us. A couple other protesters came to sort of stand between me and the police, but the cop just reached through them and pulled me out of there and then uh, spun me around and frog marched me out the door. They handed me over to the Rutgers cops and uh, took me across MLK Boulevard there and put me in the cruiser. They took me to the NJIT police station and wrote me a ticket. Dubicki was charged with disorderly conduct and given a ticket. That charge was voided on Tuesday, but Dubicki worries that he won't be the last union member to face arrest during protests. I think there was a quick turnaround on this because it would really be um, indefensible to pursue these charges. The idea that this university might think it's a might think it's a good thing to use the police to discipline an aggrieved workforce is frankly very troubling. Will they do it to somebody else? You know, I'm fine, nobody got hurt, but uh, we don't want this to happen again. In response to this story, NJIT sent a statement which reads in part, we recognize and support the right to protest in public spaces. The learning environment in a building that was actively being used for classes, tutoring, research, and student collaborative work was repeatedly disrupted, despite multiple pleas for protesters to respect that academic space and wait to enter the Board of Trustees public meeting before continuing their chance. NJIT also says its latest contract offer includes pay raises and more benefits. But that hasn't stopped union members from preparing for a strike, taking inspiration from Rutgers. None of us really want to strike. We want to you know, settle this contract quickly and basically get on with teaching and researching. Um, but, you know, if it becomes necessary, I think we're, we're prepared to do it. We treat them as a sibling unit. You know, they're, they're one of our extended Rutgers family. And so uh, we've made it very clear to them. We're prepared to lend support in any material way we can. Brian Sachs leads the adjuncts union at Rutgers. He says NJIT workers have asked for advice on how to move forward with a strike. The most important thing that I or anybody can say to a union is build your power. Get your members behind you. You're only as strong as what your members are willing to do. The union tells me its biggest demands are raises in wages and better health care. In Newark, I'm Ted Goldberg, NJ Spotlight News. In our Spotlight on Business report tonight, Washington lawmakers have less than 24 hours to pass a stopgap spending bill and avoid a government shutdown. That deadline is tomorrow at midnight. Today, House Republicans shot down Speaker Kevin McCarthy's proposed bill, a faction of far-right conservatives voting no on his proposal. The House has agreed on three long-term spending bills that would fund defense, state, and homeland security, but to avoid a shutdown, the House and Senate have to pass the same short-term spending bill. Now, if there is a shutdown, countless services here in New Jersey would be interrupted. Things like small business loans would stop processing. Federal workers, including active and reserved armed forces members, would be furloughed. Social supports like food and other benefits for children and families would be halted. And national parks would close. And here's a look at how the markets close to end the week. And be sure to catch NJ Bisbee with Raven Santana. This week, she celebrates Hispanic Heritage Month, highlighting how the Hispanic business community contributes to the state's economy and the barriers they face in starting and running a small business. That's Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 9.30 a.m. on NJPBS. If you've been outside today, you know the roads are a flooded mess. Such a mess that this afternoon, Governor Murphy issued a state of emergency for all 21 counties. 
Flash floods have been reported around the state, with at least one water rescue happening earlier in Fairfield. Coastal flood advisories were in place since this morning, with the shore region really taking the brunt of the impact of this weather system here in New Jersey. All of this because rain fell at a rate of one to two inches an hour earlier today. Up to seven inches are expected to fall by the end of the night. It's also meant flight delays out of Newark and New York, as ground stops were declared at all major airports. New York's been under a state of emergency since the morning. And don't expect a break from this rain anytime soon. It's expected to rain through Saturday, bringing rainfall totals to 13 inches in the township of Homedale, and that's just so far this month. Farm workers are often overlooked when it comes to workers' rights issues, but they play a vital role in New Jersey's agriculture economy. And recently, their work conditions have worsened, with rising temperatures forcing them to work in extreme heat and sometimes life-threatening conditions. WNYC reporter Karen Yee and NJ Spotlight News producer Michael Warren recently took a closer look at the realities facing farm workers, and they're here with me now. Karen and Michael, thanks so much for being here tonight. Such an important topic. We really, we regularly talk about the impact of climate change on farming, on crops. We rarely talk about the impact on farm workers. Karen, I want to just better understand what are some of the conditions that these workers are dealing with? That's right. We're talking about 25,000 workers that come to the state for the season. And these workers live predominantly on the farms. The If they're here on H-2A visas, which are special work visas, the farmers actually have to provide housing on site. So you're talking talking about a population that is living in social isolation on the farms, miles from sidewalks or roads sometimes. These are workers that are coming from other countries in many cases, don't speak English, may not know the language, um, and really rely on the farmers for access to uh, cars, to go to the grocery store, or to even get basic hygiene products, and also rely on the farmers for their, for their way of living as well. So Michael, what are the dangers that they're facing when they're actually on the job? As we know, climate, you know, the, the climate is warming, they're dealing with extreme heat, just break that down. What does that look like? Yeah, I think we really got to realize that New Jersey since 1895 has warmed by an average of 3.5 degrees. And we see that play out uh, throughout the year in terms of, of warmer summers, um, warmer winters, um, and and the number of days that, that reach 85, 90, 95 degrees is increased significantly. And these workers are out in the fields, outdoors with little shade, doing hard work. I mean, they're sweating and just lots of physical exertion for eight, 10 hours a day. And on particularly hot and humid days, if they don't have enough shade or enough water or just enough time to like take a break, you know, you can, they can push their bodies into states of, of heat exhaustion or sometimes heat stroke. And, and those are serious conditions that can lead to hospitalization or, or even death. And they have led to death, yes? Yes. So, Karen, what are some of the protections that they are looking for or that advocates say should be granted to them? That's right. So there's no federal heat standard. I mean, the federal government is working on it, but that process can take up to seven years and there's really no time to lose. So farm workers um, nationally are 35 times more likely to die of heat than other workers. And so at the state level, there's been some bills proposed to mandate, for example, shaded areas or paid breaks, but haven't gotten really much movement. And so advocates are looking to the federal level to see, can we get some rules in place as it gets hotter to just really ask for basic things, right? Like ice water, breaks after a couple of hours, after 
after work, working in the heat, especially when it gets to a certain temperature. Michael, one thing that Karen mentioned was they're living in kind of substandard housing as well. One of the things your reporting highlighted is that they're often not even drinking water because they're paid by what they produce. And so water means a water break, means they need to use the restroom. So these could be potentially extremely dangerous situations for them. And then they have no air conditioning when they go home. Yes, I mean, there's there's very few legal protections in place, so it's really a farm-by-farm farm basis. And some growers uh, take better care of their workers than than others do. But especially with the housing standards, I mean, if workers are here uh, on the H-2A visa, they have some level of protection. There's some very basic standards for their housing. But if you're a worker who's here and you have a different legal status, maybe you're undocumented, there's really no rules um, for, for what kind of conditions you may be living in. And that's really important, especially in the peak of the summer when you've been out in the fields all day, your body temperature's up and you're looking for time to rest. If you can't rest, then... Karen, just very quickly, a few seconds. Um, they also cannot unionize. Only a few states allow farm workers to unionize. What are advocates calling for here in New Jersey? Right, there has been some bills proposed as well to extend the collective bargaining rights that regular workers have under the National Labor Relations Act, and that still hasn't gotten much movement, but that would give them a seat at the table and a voice to demand some of these protections. Karen Yee, WNYC reporter, our very own Michael Saul Warren. Thank you both. Great reporting. Really important topic. Thank you. Thank you, Joanna. The hospital can be a scary place for kids, especially when they have to stay there. But at St. Joseph's Children's Hospital in Patterson, a program called Child Life is offering their youngest patients just a little bit of comfort and fun while they bravely battle their diagnosis. Earlier this week, I had a chance to visit the Child Life Department at St. Joseph's and to meet a couple of the bright-eyed little girls it's impacting. Wait, we have to put the shot again. We should do the shot again? Do you want to use the real one this time? You can help me? All right, we'll do it together, okay? So it's not so scary. Eight-year-old Sofia Espinal thinks she's playing, and she is, but she's also working through her fear of needles, something she has to deal with now as a patient here at St. Joseph's Children's Hospital in Patterson. That's where the child life specialists come in. The typical reaction is they're gonna come into the hospital, they're gonna be anxious, they're gonna be scared because nobody wants to be here, it's a scary place. So our job is to try to make it not so scary. The child life specialists are trained to care for the emotional needs of a child in a healthcare setting. Isabella Colonico explains how she would work with a child who's just learned they have cancer. From the minute that they are diagnosed, I'm there with the family to help them understand what cancer is. We have books, videos, and dolls. Um, that mimic exactly what they're going to go through. And just like with Elmo, they help the kids understand the process through a practice called medical play. We use medical play every day in our careers, um, and it's a really fun way to actually use the real-life medical supplies, and we explain step-by-step step in a developmentally appropriate way the sensory things, so we're going through each step. There's going to be that rubber band on there, and yeah, it can be really tight. Is it worse than the needle, or is the needle worse? The worse. The worse is the needle? Yeah. Just validating all the different feelings. And you know, we don't lie, there is going to be a poke. And sometimes it does hurt. But we offer choices when we do that. So offering choices is the, is the most important part where they can gain that sense of control back. Maybe oh. his lungs? No. Nope, just his heart. You're in charge. You're the doctor. The specialists spend a lot of time just playing with the kids, too, to help them feel less like they're in a hospital and more like they're at home. 
And they have a number of supports for kids with sensory and other needs. This is a VECTA machine. Um, it is a sensory machine that we use for actually a very wide variety of patients, um, not just with sensory needs, but it allows the kids to feel more comfortable while they're here. Really to heal, the child needs to be healed in various aspects, right? So not just the body, but the mind and the spirit. And that's what child life does. I feel like really excited and happy because I like being here because it's really fun because you get to do whatever you want and, and, and everybody is really nice here. Perhaps most unique about this program, it's not insurance based, so it operates solely on donations. Right now it's fully funded through the philanthropic support of an accounting firm called Sachs in Parsippany. Being able to support all of the resources that they need uh, to take care of children. So it's the, the crafts, it's the special therapies like art therapy and, and, and music therapy. It's, uh, you know, having uh, characters come in. It looks like toys for holidays. So Christmas, the kids get to go home with a big bag of toys. On birthdays, we get to have big celebrations. And even working in the ICU, we get, even if it, the kids are too sick to play, we have colorful blankets and nice pillows. And to end this month of childhood cancer awareness, Sachs is holding a 4K walk this weekend. Anyone can register. So uh, there's a, uh, a run and there's a walk. And there's also some kids' dashes as well. The walk is tomorrow in Parsippany. Some of the patients from St. Joseph's are actually able to attend. It's how the hospital ensures that its child life program continues to reach all the kids who need it. Support for the medical report is provided by Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Jersey, an independent licensee of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association. That's going to do it for us tonight, but this weekend, be sure to tune in to Reporters Roundtable as David Cruz talks to Ashley Koning, director of the Rutgers-Eagleton Institute of Politics, about the fallout of the Menendez indictment, plus what's at stake for statewide legislative races in November. That's Saturday at 6 p.m. and Sunday morning at 10. And on Chatbox, David goes one-on-one -on -one with Congressman Andy Kim after he announced this week he'd run against Senator Menendez following his indictment. That's Saturday at 6.30 p.m and Sunday morning at 10.30 on NJPBS. I'm Joanna Gagas for the entire NJ Spotlight News team. Thanks for being with us. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you right back here on Monday. The members of the New Jersey Education Association, making public schools great for every child. RWJ Barnabas Health, let's be healthy together. And Orsted, committed to the creation of a new, long-term, sustainable, clean energy future for New Jersey. Our future relies on more than clean energy. Our future relies on empowered communities, the health and safety of our families and neighbors, of our schools and streets. The PSEG Foundation is committed to sustainability, equity, and economic empowerment. Investing in parks, helping towns go green, supporting civic centers, scholarships, and workforce development that strengthen our community.